This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. I'm here with my right-hand man, Colin McClellan. What's up? What's going on, man? How you doing? You know, just the usual. Just the grind. Yeah. We've got a busy week. Yeah. I'm excited, too, because this is our first episode that we're trying out video. So hopefully our podcast will be going out on YouTube soon. So we've invested in some AV equipment, trying to get that launched. And it's been fun. we got we got video cameras everywhere. So we'll see how it's it kind of look out. like a legit operation. I feel like I'm in a movie right now. I want to say legit. I mean, we're still kind of... <laughs> Still scrappy, but yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> so, what we got today, man? So, we're here today with John Ludwig of Novi Labs. What's up, man? Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Of course, of course. We've heard so many good things about you, and so it was great to, to finally connect. They connected through uh, Ryan and Jeremy over at Cottonwood, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. got a lot of well, well paid uh, snitches out there, so <laughs> <laughs> you know. So high level, just really quickly, just kind of tell us a little bit about what Novi Labs does, and then we'll kind of just take a walk down memory lane and kind of find out what your background is and what kind of led you to, to Novi Labs today. Yeah. So we started out in 2014. A problem we focus on is pre-drill predictions for uh, oil and gas wells, specifically horizontal wells. So we've always focused on that use case. So back in 2014, the early days, we fortunate enough to start with a customer, which made it a lot easier to get some venture financing not long after that. And our, our software helps oil and gas operators improve economic results on their drilling programs. So we focus on pre-drill predictions specifically, we use AI and machine learning type technologies. We build predictive models. And what we do kind of functions as an analog for what operators do in the typical process of building type curves. We just do it a lot faster. And we think in a more useful way that allows them to evaluate these scenarios much faster than they do today. Is the main focus the kind of the economic analysis and in well planning is kind of just like the the means to the end to get there? Yeah. So I mean it's a little bit of both, right? You okay. can't you can't maximize economics without looking at a lot of scenarios and scenarios are typically planning type scenarios. But most of the customers we engage with are are doing, you know, are able to handle one major scenario for a given iteration of their capital plan. Every 30 to 60 days, you know, we, we can shorten that to three to six days or less. So there's a major efficiency gain there. But more important than the efficiency is that a given size team of engineers and geologists can look at a lot more scenarios. And if you can look at more scenarios, your odds of picking the best scenario are much better. Yeah. So statistics in general, which, you know, machine learning is a sub function of, of that discipline. It's all about driving things to the center of a histogram. So in this case, we're talking about economic returns. And the reason why that's so important in this industry is because there's 150 billion annually being invested. And depending on whose, whose numbers you trust, could be higher than that, maybe a little lower, but that's a lot of money. So 1% difference is, it would be great in terms of uh, return on that capital investment. We like to think that the real opportunity is 10, 10 to 25%, depending on, uh, depending on what condition they're in when we get there. So before we dive, I have so many questions about like what you getting into the nuts and bolts of like what you guys do and kind of where you position yourself on the market and how all it works. But first, let's kind of take a dive back to, you know, where, where did you get your stuff? Like where, where, where are you from? What'd you go to school for? I know you said you, before we got on the mic, you kind of went the, was it like the consulting round a little bit? And then now you're at Adobe Lab. So let's kind of go through your story a little bit. Yeah. So we went to college in Florida, University of Florida, 
So that puts me at odds with most of the people I meet here in Texas, at least in terms of uh, football. But my undergrad was in finance and economics. So I've always been a numbers guy. And I've always been interested in things that are sort of transformational that are happening, disrupting a market, et cetera, et cetera. So I started my first company back in 97. We focused on web content management. So at the time, that was actually hard to do. Now there's like a gazillion tools that, that do that. And we built actually a, a business that was actually a SaaS model before people called it SaaS. It was, you know, full full turnkey service, including hosting, and you could run your website in our software. So that was a lot of fun. Took the company public in 99, so I got to run a public company for a while. So everyone should do that once, with the emphasis on once. Just once. Uh, <laughs> I don't ever want to do it again, but... Uh, but it was fun. It was a good learning experience. And then also, you know, in 2002, there's a big downturn. You guys are probably too young to remember this, but 2002 was pretty awful just in general, but particularly for tech. There was a lot of overvalued companies that had to get yeah. sorted out. So that was uh, interesting. I got to run a small public company during a really awful downturn and then Sarbanes-Oxley and all that good stuff. So I ended up uh, selling that company in 2003, or at least my stake in it. And it went on after that. And I moved into a boutique consultancy here in here in Houston. That went on for a couple of years. We got bought by a company called Proficient, which is a publicly traded systems integration company. But I moved to Texas in 2001, and pretty much ever since then, I've been in and around oil and gas. You can't avoid it. Not that I was trying to, but I've always been super interested in the economics of oil and gas, just given my background, because the economics are mind-bogglingly large. The amount of risk, the amount of money that you have to spend just to find out if you have something is staggering. So anything to, or that can help companies reduce the risk associated with that capital is, I've always been interested in that. So being in and around the industry, kind of fast forward to 2012, I took a job with uh, Hess Corporation. So they were, they were a company that was going through a massive transition, transformation at that time, moving to a what they call the three-legged stool, which they've talked about a lot publicly, but one of the legs of the stool is unconventional. So one of the big assets they they had was in the Williston. At the time when I got there, it was maybe 50,000 barrels a day. I left three years later, it was 100-and-something thousand barrels a day, so it doubled in size uh, in production. And the only way you do that is by doing a lot of drilling. So I feel like I got my MBA in unconventionals working in there, and I saw firsthand a lot of the things that happened. So unbelievably great experience and you know, the idea for Novi was kind of born in my days there at Hess, trying to build technology solutions that helped that team. At the time, 40% of the company's capital was going into this asset. So I thought I should probably spend at least 40% of my team's time trying to help them. Uh, so that's what we did. And then eventually I decided this is something I wanted to do full time, particularly the analytical side of it, and particularly on the maximizing return on capital. So that's that's kind of when Novi got got started. So going back to your first company, when you said it was web content management, you know, this is in 1997. So this is the very early days of the internet, at least from a consumer perspective. Was this kind of like, you know, what you'd compare to a WordPress or or something of the likes today? I mean, obviously you didn't have these drag and drop tools or SaaS models back then. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what you guys were doing? I'm just trying to figure out how you know, kind of how you pivoted from that, you know, and then going into oil and gas and analytics. So just trying to get some understanding of what you guys were doing there. Yeah, we there's no plan involved. We had an office here in Houston. The office here actually did really well even after the downturn. Hence, as the CEO of the company, I needed to be where the customers were. So I moved down here. We picked up some oil and gas customers because they were all thinking they needed to have a website. And this is, this is 99, 2000 timeframe. So 
at the time, the choices were very large premise-based software, interwoven, you know, Vignette, which is an Austin-based company, and there are a bunch of others in that space. But it was it was quickly becoming commoditized, and I, I saw that, so I'm like, geez, you know, what a lot of these companies need is something that's pretty simple. You know, they, they just need to be able to edit their own websites without having to pay, you know, advertising firms a ton of money just to do HTML updates. So that's what we did. We just made it easy for them to to do that. So we got a hold in, in oil and gas. And since we were good at the internet, any other web-based things they wanted to do, they asked us to bid on. So kind of did a combination of software and services there for a while. But one that I remember in particular was Anadarko. We, we built their well file information management system back in 2001. It was a Java backend and an HTML front end. And it was the only one I'm aware of at the time where literally anyone in the company could, could log into this system and, and get information about every single well that they had. And this is right after they'd done a major acquisition. So they had a lot of new data that was coming in and so on. So we built that system in 2001. I learned a lot about wells because we kind of had to, to, to build the thing. Yeah, so it, really ever since then, I was, I've just been kind of infatuated with, uh, with the industry and the stakes at which you operate companies in this space. It's crazy that you did that in 2001 because – most companies or most EMPs today still do not have that. Yeah. I mean, Anadarko has always distinguished itself via, via technology, right? They've, even to this day, they have an advanced emerging technologies advanced analytics team, right? Yeah. So I think they're, they've always been forward-looking. They've always been willing to take risk and invest in technology the same as they do for their, for their wells. So yeah. it's interesting. You know, you look building websites for companies back then, all these oil and gas companies thought they needed a website. And so you guys were taking a solution that, you know, you were implementing in other industries and then capturing this market share in oil and gas. Do you see any similarities from that time period and now when oil and gas companies are looking at analytics or any other, you know, data-driven software solutions? And do you see any similarities in this time period and that time period where now, you know, obviously these other industries have been using software and different solutions, you know, whether it's SASP services or whatever it may be, and now they're wanting to implement those same things. Do you see kind of any relation between the two time periods? Yeah. You know, in an ironic sort of way, a lot of the companies, a lot of the oil companies, we helped get online in the 99 time frame. You know, you'd ask them, why are you doing this? And they're like, I don't know, because everyone, everyone's getting a website, right? So we should be online, right? I mean, they didn't really think a lot about who are the stakeholders? What am I trying to tell them? They're just like, we should have some information about the company and our stock ticker should be on our webpage. In the early days of analytics, the pioneering days, you know, 14, 15, when companies were just starting to get going, the answer is the same. Like, why, why are you doing advanced analytics? What is it about machine? Well, I don't know. I want to put it in our investor relations materials and say, <laughs> you know, say we, we're doing analytics and machine learning, man. I got to be on the, I got to be on the bandwagon because I don't, I don't want to be left out. I don't want to not have an answer when when I'm asked these questions by uh, analysts or, or whatever. And in particular, on the analyst front, investor relations in general, everybody knows financial services was an early adopter of, of these kinds of technologies. So it kind of put the oil and gas companies at a bit of a disadvantage because they knew the people asking these questions actually understand what machine learning is. And a lot of them in the early days didn't. It was new. So that was a pretty interesting thing that was happening. And now it's kind of come full circle. It's It's all about how is this going to help drive business value? How can I create business value with this? Less and less of them are putting buzzwords into their investor relations materials. More and more of them are focused on actual business results, actual increase in return on capital, and those those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. 
So in 2012, you joined Hess Corporation. What year was it when you started Novi Labs? Company was founded in 14. So initially it was kind of a, a co-engineering project and I ran the project from, from the Hess side. And then I stayed, I stayed there until, stayed at Hess to get the technology across the line until mid 15. Okay, so this was something that was actually being developed by Hess. Hess was developing or contributing resources to it? From the perspective of engineering resources. So okay. like validation, QA, validation, those sorts of things. And then the technology was, was being built by a small team of folks in, in Austin. Okay. So walk me through that. So were you, were you a full-time employee at Hess? Yes. And so did you just propose the project and then you found all the resources and then you were able to kind of keep the IP f- for that? Yeah, so they Hess is kind of an interesting company. You know, it's it's run by John Hess, who's the son of the founder. He's one of the last wildcatters out there that runs a public company. So they they're they're a really cool company in that they take they're willing to do things that are unique and different. They take extraordinary risks sometimes to make those things happen. So I was originally planning to leave the company because I wanted to work on the analytics stuff full time, and I kind of had the idea in my head and. They were like, no, stay, Im- implement it here. We understand, you know, we need to handle this right with our compliance group, which we did. We figured out a way forward there. And I said, okay, well, this is a great situation. You know, it's, it's sort of the right way to build software for the oil and gas industry is to do it inside of a, a software company. And this may fail. It may not. It, it may succeed. But if it succeeds, this this is definitely something that, that should be a, a commercial product. And... The other, the other thing about Hess was their, their view was very pragmatic. So they, they believed that the software, you know, any, any kind of AI or ML technology is going to benefit from more data. So it, I think their view always was, if this is something we're going to, we, we want to be imminently useful, we want it to have as much data in it as possible, and we can only provide the data from, from our wells. So it should be a commercial solution so that somebody can address this data question that's necessary to make, make the analytics go. So that was, those are all sort of factors that, you know, as, as it was kind of playing out there in, in the early, early days. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't know if we've had anyone come on the show up to this point that's kind of had that path of, you know, developing something internally at an EMP and then, you know, turning it into a, a freestanding product. So I feel like it's something that used to be done a lot more often than it is now. But you said that was in what, 2012, 2014 timeframe? 2014, yeah. 2014. I've heard it done with like physical downhole tools. You know, I don't hear of it happening a lot with any software analytical tools. So you said that you guys had a team in Austin that was actually developing it. Mm -hmm. Were those people that, you know, you went out and sourced independent developers or did you use, you know, some type of shop to spin it up for you? How did you guys go about that? Yeah, it was really interesting. The, the founding technical team, there's a, there's a team of, of four guys that had worked together most recently at Indeed. So Indeed was a very successful company. If you've ever done a job search, you know, you'll, yeah. you'll, find, you'll find Indeed. So these guys have solved a huge data aggregation problem, and they built the data aggregation platform, this, this sort of core team. So Indeed was sold, and then many of them made some money on the sale because it was sold for a lot of money. Very successful outcome for the for the Indeed folks. So, so we kind of found the ringleader of that group and just so happens his, his father was involved in the oil and gas industry. He's a, he's a chemist by, by trade and teaches at Princeton and he was doing consulting with Slumberjay. So his son was interested. So he brought over his, his team and, and it was like four, four dudes and a, 
co-shared office space in, in Austin, Texas that really kind of got it going. And then I just, from my perspective, I just ran the project from, from the Hess side and made sure that it, it was successfully implemented and integrated into their, into their planning workflows. So uh, other than the help from Hess, are you, are you a, a single founder? You don't have any co-founders or anything? I would consider the core team that came on, all, all of those guys okay. are, are technical. I'd call them technical co-founders. Okay. So also, I don't know if you covered this earlier, but do you see yourself as more of like the technical guy or more like the business guy? Are you kind of like a kind of in between? Yeah, I'm sort of, I'm sort of in between. I mean, I, I have a lot of technical background, but I'm not an expert in AI. I'm not a you know, software engineer, yeah, yeah. but I understand how those things work. I've implemented yeah. lots and lots of technical projects over the course of my career. So, so I understand it pretty well from that side. And although I'm not an oil and gas engineer, I've been in, in and around the industry for so long that I, I know it from the data forward pretty well. So I guess I'm sort of in between. I'm, in, role, the, I'm in the same boat. Yeah. There with you. <laughs> yeah. My role today, I focus mostly on, on the commercial side of our business. So how do we bring this technology to market? Yeah. And what sorts of interfaces or gaps or other things can we fill? How do we make this more useful for customers? I, I focus a lot on the product and the product strategy side. In addition to mm-hmm. directly managing our, you know, lar- large customer relationships as well, I've always enjoyed doing that, and I feel like I'm good at it. So that's that's the way in which I think I can add the most value to the company. So once you guys were wanting to make that leap to, you know, take this commercial and actually productize this outside of Hess, kind of walk us through what that process was like for you guys. Yeah, it was brutal, actually. <laughs> <laughs> to be frank, uh, you know, like like who in their right mind would leave a cushy job? And I had a great job at Hess. I a great manager and, and great team. So it was, it was hard to walk away from that, but it was, like I said before, I was kind of infatuated with the, with the, the industry and solving this particular problem. So I felt it like it was worth it. But if you look at what happened to the price of oil from like July of 15 to like February of 2016, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. So we were, we, we started commercializing our company and then the worst possible time when price customers were getting for the for their products was just declining percentages per day you know 10 percent a day like i mean the only good news was that 10 percent of us increasingly smaller number was like a less painful hit that was the only it got all the way down to 26 right yeah but despite that the thing that encouraged me was that people people were still talking to us and they were still interested although as i said earlier they didn't know why but they were interested and they thought there's some there's something here we should keep digging which is a common sort of mode of thinking in the, in the industry. So yeah, the early times were, were tough, but we, we hooked up with some, some great sort of second, third, fourth customers and, and we're able to test our technology across lots of other basins. We had, you know, we first came out, people were like, Oh, this works in the Williston, of course, you know, cause they have all that great data there and it'll never work anywhere else. It'll never work in the Permian. It'll never work in blah, blah, blah. You can fill in whatever, whatever basin name you want. And slowly but surely, we just beat all that back by proving that it would work in all those places. So it was a slow process, but I would say because of the obstacle imposed by the declining oil price, it really forced the industry to think think about, well, how could I do this more efficiently? How could I do this with less people if I had to? So it was it was actually kind of the best of time and the worst of time to start any kind of any kind of technology company in the oil and gas space. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, we have a lot of show or a lot of companies that come on this show with very similar stories. You know, people starting out 2014, 2015, right at the beginning of the downturn. And, you know, it's almost kind of like it created this, 
you know, perfect storm where we had all these early stage technologies, but we all also had this extreme depression and commodity prices. And I like to ask people, you know, do you think that was a big driver for adoption of technology where companies were looking inward and saying, hey, we really have to be more efficient in our day-to-day operations and the way that we're producing assets? So it kind of sounded like that you were leading to that was a driver for you guys, at least. It, cer- it certainly helped, although there were there were no proof points that that, that would actually happen. So it sounded good. Mm-hmm. Everyone thought it sounded good, but without any proof, without any use cases, without any customers that would stand up and say, yeah, you know, this used to take me 50 engineers and now I only need 30. And, and by the way, when you're marketing and selling something, going to the very people that are going to be your users and saying, hey, you know, if you buy our technology, you might not need to be here anymore. Like, that's not a great, <laughs> not a great selling proposition. We're going to replace you. Yeah, we're going to replace you with this machine in the cloud that you can't even physically see. It's like the ultimate boogeyman. It was an interesting time. I always like to, you know, there's a quote from Mike Tyson where he said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And I think everyone that was alive at that time and in software and in oil and gas got punched in the mouth. And you either, you either fell over or you figured out a way to, to persevere. And that's, that's kind of what we did. And I think a lot of the companies you talked to, that's what they did too. Yeah. We, I remember with GDS where it was, we'd already staffed up a little bit and then the sales cycle, which is already long, you know, wait, what, what did Charles average sales cycle? I know ours was about six months on the short end to a year and a half. They've tightened up a little bit actually yeah. lately because the, the value proposition is much tighter than it was in the early days. But yeah, yeah I mean, I, back in those days, uh, <laughs> yeah. I was thinking it might be six years. I don't know. I didn't have any data points when we first started uh, on, the, on the commercial side. So. Yeah, things slowed down so much that it was just like, should we actually even be knocking on any doors until like commodity prices come up? And we we did, but we tailored it back significantly and just focused on building the product because we knew what we needed to build. Mm-hmm. We had enough data points from the market as to things that we were missing and things that we needed to work on. And so literally it was just like, all right, so I guess we're just going to code all day. Yep. And that's pretty much what we did and kind of just wrote out the storm and laid off pretty much our entire staff in the process. Yeah, you know, I mean, the layoffs are always difficult. Yeah. doesn't matter when it, when or why it happens. The one thing you said there that I was, I was kind of reflecting on that I think is absolutely true, you know, when you're, when, you're not, when you're not that busy, you know, if you don't have the stress, like let's just say you went out, let's say I went out in 2015 and like eight customers signed up. Like I would be focused 100% on trying to deliver. Yep. Using a platform that isn't really software yet and then we'd be cobbling it together. And then you can have the opposite problem, which is all the band-aids that you did to make things go faster. You know, you, you accrue a massive amount of technical debt yeah. when that happens. So the, so the general softness in the industry meant that two things were true. Number one, the people that we were talking to had more time to talk to us because they weren't, so, they weren't under the gun with mm. a 20-rig 20, a 20 program or whatever. You know, they had to keep those rigs busy, and that was their top priority. So we didn't have... We had more access to subject matter experts, which are really important to help you build the software. And then second, we had more time to think about what internalize what they were telling us and turn that into software that actually would would help them solve those problems without having to also face the dual-headed monster of a, a huge amount of delivery pressure, right? Like, you know, delivery is about deadlines and dates and yeah. milestones and payments. And, you know, that's a different business than trying to build enterprise software, right? And you can manage the two of them. It's just really, really hard. So in our case, the industry absolved us of having to solve the scaling problem, which allowed us, I think, to build much better software. Yep. 
So can you give us a little bit more of an in-depth uh, inner workings of your software? So, you know, for me, I'm not a reservoir engineer. You know, I don't know all the technicalities, but how does your software take a 50-man operation down to a 30-man operation? Yeah, so, I mean, while we don't expressly say that's the purpose of it, that, you know, reduction in, in GNA is, is one way you can, you can one of the value propositions for, for this kind of technology. But, you know, the, if you think about the process of creating a type curve and building a, and then taking that all the way through and actually building a budget. So you're going from, these are all the wells we could drill, this is, this is how we think those wells would perform. This, these are the economics that are associated. So you have the cost of drilling the wells. Mm-hmm. These are our expectations on what the price is going to be, you know, WTI price, gas price, et cetera. And all those inputs combined together, you know, kind of get rolled up. And there's various tools that do this, but you're basically talking about something that goes across, you know, four or five different groups, reservoir engineering, completions engineering, and really starts with geology. You know, it's where your, your source uh, subsurface data would come from. So geology, reservoir engineering, completion engineering, planning, and then you've got your sort of, you know, your, your sort of final approval team, which is typically, you know, in some cases the board of directors, in other cases a central planning team or, or whatever. But that's a lot of groups, right? So, so one of the things that technology can do is, is help you build a solution where data that each team, each of those teams provides is either automatically generated or they each can provide their inputs along the way. So we've always seen this sort of collaborative aspect in something other than a spreadsheet as being a major, major part of, of what we do. So I would never argue that a company should just get rid of, a, of their technical staff. What I would argue for is that they use software that makes that staff more efficient. So instead of being able to do one or two iterations of your annual capital plan, you're able to do one or 200 of the same thing. So any size team, given tools like ours, they're going to be a lot more efficient. And that efficiency is not necessarily just so you can let people go. The efficiency is there so that the same size team can produce a much more extraordinary result. So where would you guys <laughs> kind of position yourself against, say, like a Wellview or like a PhD win? Like where do you kind of fall on that? Or is it, or is it apples and oranges? I don't know. Yeah, well, well yeah, it's apples and oranges. Like well, Wellview is very focused on kind of being your drilling historian, right? So yeah. the information about how you complete wells is, is typically input there. You know, yeah. so the, the proposed design, the as-built design, directional surveys, all those sorts of things find a home there. And for us, we're not a replacement for those things. That's for us source data. We use that data about how wells were completed and engineered to train the models that we build to predict how future wells might, might perform. Because as, as you might imagine, completions and drilling definitely has an impact on on the well's performance. Things like PhD Win or, or Ares or product formerly known as Intersight, which is now like Alcerna, all of those things are kind of in the in the planning space. So we actually are an input uh, into those sorts of tools because those, those tools do sort of final refinements on your plan, taking into account surface conditions and constraints that exist on the surface. Like, well, if I I produce a gas well and it can and it can produce you know four TCF in its fir- or BCF in its first day. Can I actually do I actually have pipeline capacity to s- get that product to market so I can sell it? That's an important question. And presently we don't answer that question. You know we answer the question about what range of outcomes exist or can can exist based on a well drilled in this location with these subsurface conditions completed you know this way. But the output of that becomes then an input into tools like 
PhD win or Aries or Alcerna and those sorts of things. So there, there's, there's a pretty vibrant system there of, of companies. And I, I do think there, there are advantages to having a single system that can go all the way from input data to predictive model to type curves that come out of that, you know, which are your, your future well predictions all the way through the planning and subsurface. But no, no company has, has solved that yet, as far as I know. Do you think there'll ever be an end-to-end solution, or are we always just going to see yeah, no, a, Novi. a basket? Yeah. <laughs> Novi will be that solution. It is. I mean, it is a big test, though, right? Just because there. Are, I mean, when especially when you think of adoption in the market, you know, getting companies off of some of these legacy systems is probably, I'd imagine, one of the biggest barriers to that. You know, just because all the engineers in the space have been trained up on these systems, they've used them for you know x amount of years. So I'd imagine that would be a challenge in itself. Yeah, I mean, I mean, any any time there's there's an entrenched incumbent, and you know, oil and gas seems to be once once the industry decides that there's a winner, everybody buys that software, so everybody uses it. And like you guys said, every all of the engineers are trained. And even though even though you may look at the software as an outsider and go, "Man, that sucks!" Like that's the worst software I've ever seen. It's a terrible user experience or whatever. You know, I could do so much better. It doesn't matter. You know, like I know how to use this. I know it works. I don't want to start. I start messing around, spinning knobs and dials, ripping stuff out. Now I've got a major change management problem that I've just I've just signed myself up for. And you know, the other thing to think about too is, I mean, it is as certain companies hire people, other companies let people go. Those engineers walk around with those skill sets and the knowledge of how to use that software. So if they walk into oil company B, they're like, we we need to use Wellview, we need to use Aries, we need to you know, this is the stuff I know how to use. So yeah, I mean that's that's there. But doesn't mean it, it. It's always going to be that way. It just means it just means it takes a little longer to get to get stuff across the line. Yeah. So where are you guys at today in terms of adoption? Is it a little bit less painful than the the 2014 era? Are people taking a harder look at Novi Labs? And then also, you guys took on funding right from Cottonwood and some other groups. And I was kind of I wanted to ask this question a, a while ago, but. So since Hess dedicated engineering resources, I'm assuming they still have a stake in Novi Labs. Is that correct? They don't. They opted They opted not to. And pragmatically, I think it was actually a pretty smart decision, although I was surprised at the time. But they felt like if an operator had a stake in a company like this, then other operators would be reticent to sign up because they feel like, oh, you know, like, for example, if you were a competitor of Hess, like Oasis or Continental or some other company operates in, in, in the uh, Williston, if Hess were an owner in, in Novi, you, you might be hesitant to invest in Novi software because you, you think in some way, like at some board meeting, I'm going to have to slide, you know, Continental's well results under the table to somebody on the Hess side. So I think it was very pragmatic on, on their side to not, not want to own equity in, in the company. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I could see that being an issue for, you know, for sure. Other EMPs could be afraid that they'd have data leaked over to mm-hmm. the operator that backed it. So what are you guys seeing in terms of adoption of it? Are engineers taking a harder look at it nowadays in 2019? Yeah, absolutely. We found a nice niche in the sort of private equity backed company market. There's a lot of those, mm-hmm. a lot of private capital. Cha- Maybe chasing. too many of them. <laughs> <laughs> great, great, great for software providers though. I think above my pay grade, yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, if you, if you look at it pragmatically, it's 40% of the, of the total 150 billion in capital, 40% of that is approximately is provided by 
PE-backed or private equity companies, right? So that market is really interesting for us because they specifically want a lean team. They want efficiency. Mm-hmm. And most of the times we get to them before they've staffed up a massive team. So they don't, they don't have the 50 to 30 problem. They have the, I have three and I'd like to go maybe to five and I don't want any more than that. So they are specifically looking for advantages that add, that add efficiency. So that's yeah. been a good market a good market for us. And then surprisingly, it's not like some of the super large operators too are taking up a, a much larger interest in this. We've, we've had some good success with majors, which was totally surprising. Was that, to me. was that part of your original go to market strategy? I mean, I know a lot of, a lot of startups won't take a look at majors just because they don't want to spend their wheels for so long. You know, when you have this huge market of PE backed or smaller independents, was that something that you guys kind of set out to do or did that just happen organically? It happened organically, but in the early days, I would talk to anyone that would talk to me. So I wasn't as particular, and mainly because every discussion was an opportunity to learn something, right? So they would they would tell me something about their preferences. They, if they didn't want to buy our technology, they would tell me why, and then I would like learn something. You know, I'm like, oh, if we had we just had this one feature, then maybe we'd consider it. And that was that's those are useful lessons. So I, you know, ma- majors operate at at a massive scale. They think about the decisions differently than smaller companies do, but the perspective is valuable nonetheless. So I always would, would engage in those conversations and yeah, you know, they can, they can waste your time. Absolutely. Depending on what your, what your market is, but they will always provide you with useful advice. And I, I think also a lot of the larger majors have, you know, like, like for example, BP is like funding and spinning out companies, you know, like kind of like what happened organically with Hess with us. They did the same, they did the same thing, except they formalized the process, you know, and they, mm-hmm. you know, and they're not just giving venture capital to companies. They're actually building the software internally and then spinning it out as a separate company. So you're starting to see some business models like that evolve. I mean, Shell, for example, has iShell, which is public information on that on, on their website. And then the express intent of that group is to find companies like us and figure out ways to get them engaged and sort of cut some of those cycles down mm-hmm. you know chevron has chevron technology ventures which has a similar similar mission yeah so. is really good at it too and mm-hmm. then, you know some third parties like unique ventures coming in the space so a lot of people yep. are making moves into that market so before we wrap it up fortunately we got to cut it off john where can people find you where what is novi labs website novilabs.com and All we right. also have got of course uh a twitter accounts so though you like to oh, you're on, you're on you twitter like, you I like to do you. the tweets yeah, yeah. yeah. We're on the um, Twitter. You got to yeah, get on the tweets. <laughs> and then we, of course, have a LinkedIn LinkedIn account. We keep those things pretty Okay, awesome. Well. Are, you, are you personally on LinkedIn as well? Yeah. Okay, awesome. So we'll put a link in the in the show notes to your LinkedIn and CL's website. So if anybody's listening and wants to reach out to Novi Labs, just check out the show notes. Reach out to John. John, we appreciate you coming on the show, man. Yeah, thank you, guys. Great to meet you. I'm excited to see it. I need to see a demo of Adobe. <laughs> yeah, I got the wheel spinning hey, now. We'll do that soon. Maybe we'll have a, a demo video on Digital Wildcatters' website yeah. soon. So Maybe the next Energy Tech Night. We'll yep. see. Keep yeah. your eyes filled. All, All right. right. Thank you, John. Thanks, guys. Come, come, come.